You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. If everyone would stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm reading out of Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, The men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of the Lord... I'm sorry. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard now the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. This past Tuesday, a woman named Diet. Eman passed away at the age of 99. Dietz grew up, grew up in the Netherlands, and uh, she was 20 years old when the Nazis invaded her country. And she and her fiancé, they quickly decided to join the Dutch Resistance. If you're not familiar, the Dutch Resistance, they were uh, a bunch of people uh, who were dedicated to all sorts of things, undercover things, to try to stop the Nazis while they were under occupation Things like factory strikes, the sabotage of phone lines or railways, the printing of underground newspapers, the collecting of Nazi military information that they would pass off to the Allies. And, but one of their uh, most important activities was the illegal protection of Jewish refugees whom the Nazis were rounding up and sending to concentration camps. And to do this, they would forge ration cards and ID cards, and they would build trapdoors and hidden rooms, and they would create all sorts of uh, secret networks to make sure that Jews were safe and an estimated 200,000 Dutch citizens successfully protected an estimated 300,000 Jews during this time in the Netherlands. Indeed, it was one of the leaders of this resistance. She was a fascinating woman. When when she and her fiancé found out that the Nazis had come into town and they were relocating the Jews to concentration camps, uh, the first thing they did was they found their immediate friends who were Jews, and they decided to try to relocate them, and so they successfully relocated 60 Jews um, to different safe houses around the country, and then 
Following that, she became a courier for hundreds more. She would transport ID cards and ration cards and personal mail from different locations. And her fiancé, unfortunately, was discovered. He was sent to a concentration camp, and within a year, he died. When she found out that her husband was arrested, she moved to a new location. She had changed her identity. A, little, a few months after that, she had to do it again, moved to a new location, changed her identity. But soon afterwards, she herself was captured. She was sent to a concentration camp. But she, uh, during her concentration camp, she had thrown away all evidence uh, of her uh, affiliation with the resistance, and she had essentially created her, this false identity. She had memorized a story to tell her interrogators, and she actually was able to convince her interrogators that it was a false arrest. She was just a naive housemaid, and they let her go. And uh, she eventually continued to work for the resistance until the end of the war. It's a fascinating story. Uh, she just passed away this past Tuesday. And uh, I was just reading about a lot of these people in these movements uh, during this past week. And it's fascinating to me, you know, um, 70 years later, 80 years later, to think about it all and to wonder what is it that caused people like her to be a part of the resistance? Why would someone choose to be a part of the resistance even though it would cost you so much? In 1994, she published her memoir, um, her memoir and, and she described in the early days of the Nazi occupation, quote, it was no more than a few months after the occupation began that we realized that there were things that simply had to be done. When we saw injustice, we all felt it. We couldn't just sit there and do nothing. But what could we do? The atrocities toward the Jews all around were beginning, and we felt that it was our duty to act in some way. The queen and the government, this is the, the Dutch queen, had left for England in the early months of the five-day invasion, and there was a whole group in Holland, if you don't know Holland, is the Netherlands, who said that the queen had no right to lead us anymore. Those of us who remained behind were required to obey the government that God had given us now, that is the Germans, behind her fiancé and I, and many others felt our royal family had been crowned in a religious ceremony with the words, by the grace of God. We felt the queen was our rightful government, and we felt that we were doing what the Lord wanted when we obeyed her. And so what was going on was there was a difference of allegiance, right? Some people, they decided to go along with Nazi Germany. They were the immediate authorities, and some people decided to stay uh, allied with the queen who had gone to England, and ultimately they recognized the authority of the queen and the authority of God himself. Today, we are talking about a character in the Bible named Rahab. And Rahab, like Diet, was a woman who decided to resist her own government, her immediate authority, to even protect the enemy by hiding them in her own house at the risk of her life. And by doing so, she was appealing to another authority, a different authority, the authority of the nation of Israel and of the God of Israel. And so we're going to pray before we dive in um, and explore the story. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of Rahab. May she inspire us to live the way she did, to live with courage and zeal um, and with a passion even to death. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're currently in the middle of a series, a sermon series titled For Such a Time as This. And in this series, we're exploring different biblical characters who found themselves at the right place at the right time, 
even though they didn't know it at the time. And they took that opportunity to step out in faith and do God's will. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about Joseph. Joseph was one of these guys. He, was, he went from uh, slave to prisoner to second in command in Egypt. And this whole history that he went through of 13 years led him to this place and everything. He was set up at the right place at the right time for such a time as this, and everything made sense. Last week, we talked about Shipra and Pua, these minor characters on the surface in Exodus 1. They were these Hebrew midwives. And Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, told them to kill every Hebrew child. And most likely, when they decided, when they decided to start their careers, they didn't know that they were going to be in such a predicament. But they had the chance, the opportunity at this time, for such a time as this, to stop a genocide. And they did. And shortly afterward, the nation of Israel, they would be set free from slavery in Egypt. They would travel to Canaan. And on the way to Canaan, um, the Egyptian army tried to chase them down, but God intervened. That was a whole a drying up of the Red Sea scene. Uh, watch uh, The Prince of Egypt, a great movie. Uh, but then uh, they arrived to the border of Canaan. And right before they arrived, these two countries attacked them. Sihon and Og, they were these kings, actually. Uh, they attacked them, and they actually successfully defeated these large armies. It was also a miraculous military victory. And that brings us to today's story. They're at the other side of the Jordan River, which marks the boundary of Canaan. They're right, they're right about to enter into the land of Canaan. And Jericho is a city that is right on the other side of the, the river in the land of Canaan. That's where our story begins. Today's sermon is titled, The Resistance. Um, I'm going to reread some of these verses. I'm going to start from Joshua 2, verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim of spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. So Joshua, the leader of the Israelites at the time, sent spies into the land of Canaan. And Jericho was this major city right on the other side of the Jordan River. It was on their hit list. Uh, uh, Jericho was this wicked city. And uh, this is something you should know. Uh, sometimes a lot of people have a lot of questions about how this conquest took place. Uh, was it okay for these people to slaughter all these people? And this is a very long-winded answer. But one thing you should know is that Jericho and the surrounding cities were intentionally targeted because God wanted to purge the land of the wickedness. Okay, so that was what's going on. The spies head over. They stay with a prostitute named Rahab. We don't know much about Rahab. We do know she was a prostitute. And just as it is today, during that time, it was not very fashionable. It was not very, uh, you're not looked highly upon if you're a prostitute. Um, to be a prostitute meant that you were out of luck, probably. You had to resort to being a prostitute. That wasn't one of your main options um, in life. This probably meant you went through a lot of negative experiences, a lot of pitfalls, and you had to end up in a place where the only option left, one of the few things you could do, was to be a prostitute. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of who she was. She probably lived on the margins of society. Um, she probably was rejected by a lot of people around her. That's who she was. And then we get to verse 2 to 7, which tells us what happened. And then followed by verse 8 through 11, which talks about why Rahab did what she did. In verse 2 to 7, we, as we read earlier, the king, they find out, the, the king finds out these spies are in the land. And obviously, if 
these spies on the land. That's, you don't want them in the land. You want to kill them. And so he's trying to kill these people. And they send, he sends guards to uh, Rahab's house. But Rahab chooses to lie. Rahab chooses, very similar to what the Dutch resistance did with the Jews, to hide the spies and to lie to her governing authority. She said she didn't know where they were from. That was a lie. Later we find out she knew exactly where they were from. She said that they ran away. She told them to try to chase them. That was a lie. She hid them in her house. And why did Rahab side with the Israelites? Think about this. The Israelites had stayed with her for less than a day. These were total strangers. She most likely grew up in Jericho. Jericho was all she knew. She chose to side with the Israelites over her own people. Was this a spontaneous decision? I don't think so. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 8 through 11 is sort of a flashback because they have this conversation. And then verse 8 says, Before the men lay down, so sort of like a flashback, this sort of explains what happened. She came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melts away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came in, out of Egypt and what you did to the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. There are a few things I want to point out of this passage. First of all, one thing that's sort of interesting is she is directly citing prophecies that the Lord had given to Israel. She is directly citing prophecies that the Lord had given to Israel. Notice three things in Rahab's message. In verse 9, she says, the Lord has given you the land. And then also in verse 9, she says, the fear has fallen upon us and the inhabitants of Canaan are melting away because of you. And then in verse 11, she says, the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. Now, all of these things is almost word for word, fulfillments of God's promises. I'm going to read you some verses where God says very similar things in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Exodus uh, 6, 8, this is God talking. He says, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I'm the Lord. Here's Exodus 15, 15. Now, this is shortly after uh, the Red Sea crossing, and, and they're singing a song. They say, now are the, chief, now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. And here's Deuteronomy 4, 39. Know therefore today and lay it to your hearts that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There's no other. So Rahab, whether knowingly or unknowingly, she is echoing God's promises to Israel. So imagine how the spies must have, must have felt. You know, they were in a foreign land. You know, this whole time God had been promising the nation of Israel He's going to be with them. He's going to be delivering them. And here they are in a foreign land and their own enemy has sided with them and sided the very words of God to them. That's one thing I want to point out. The second thing I want to point out is verse 10 is interesting because it foreshadows what will happen next. Right? Joshua 2 verse 10, uh, Rahab is talking about how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea. Well, in a short while, he's going to dry up the waters of the Jordan River. And then... uh, she also talks about how they defeated these two powerful nations, Sihon and Og. Well, in a short while, God is also going to defeat Jericho. So 
in these few sentences, she is both a fulfillment, she's declaring both the fulfillment of God's promises and a foreshadowing, a prediction of God's future activity, right? And let's keep going to verse 12 and 13. Now then, this is Rahab continuing. She makes a request. Please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with me, with my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my, th- my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And here's her request in a nutshell. I want to jump ship. That's what she's saying. I want to jump ship. I want to switch sides. I want to get out. And think about how crazy this is, okay? So Rahab, as I mentioned, she probably spent most, if not all of her life, in Jericho. Jericho was all she knew. It was her culture. It was her family. It was her homeland. It was her tradition. It was her religion. That was all she knew. And that day, she met two strangers, and she decided to leave everything behind, to risk it all, even her own life, to commit treason, in a sense, against her own government to side with these two strangers. And this probably wasn't a sudden decision. Uh, You know, she would be really foolish if it was a sudden decision. Most likely, this was something that was on her mind for a long time. She probably had heard about the God of Israel for a while. She knew that there was a powerful God, this powerful nation out there. She heard that this was a God who loved his people, who wanted to be in relationship with his people, who wanted to uh, create laws of justice and love and compassion for his people. And she, at one point in time, she recognized, I want to be part of that people group. I want to be part of that group. She just never probably, never met an Israelite before. She probably had never had the opportunity before. And then this day, she realized this was my chance. This was the opportunity. This was the moment I was waiting for. And so she immediately knew what she had to do. She never knew whether the opportunity would come But once it came, she immediately recognized it as the God-given opportunity to step out in faith, to take action, to count the cost, to make this decision that would potentially cost her her life and join the Israelites. This was her for such a time as this moment. She had heard the stories. She realized that siding with Jericho was a lost cause. And so she decided, I'm siding with the Israelites. You know, many of us today, we have the same predicament. We have the same choice before us. It's a little different, but uh, in a nutshell, it's this. You can either side with sin or you can side with God. That's everybody's choice. Every single one of us, we are born in Jericho, meaning we're born in lives of sin where all we know is sin. This is our default condition. This is our culture. This is our family. These are our habits. These are our religions. These are our rhythms of life is to do sinful things. And many of us, at one point in time, we hear stories. We hear stories of a God who loves his people, who wants a relationship with his people, who wants to have compassion and justice and freedom and all these things that we long for. And sometimes the people that represent this God, they're like strangers to us. They're kind of weird. Maybe they talk with an accent. They talk different. They talk funny. And we have a choice, right? It's the same choice that Rahab had. 
I can stick with the people I know, the tribe I know, the culture I know, the religion I know, the habits I know, or I can side with the people of God. It's the same choice. God has declared that he wants to tear sin down, just like he decided to tear Jericho down. And our choice is that we can either side with that sin and go down with that sin, or we can side with God and be saved. It's this decision that Rahab had to make. You can stick with what's familiar to you, obeying the authorities that are over you, or you can join the resistance to side with God, to say you have more allegiance with God than to Jericho. And notice this also, Rahab didn't just want for herself to be saved. She also asked that her parents, her siblings, and all who belonged to them, that they would be saved too. She wanted to bring as many people as possible with her. And I think that should be our mentality too. That when we side with God, it's not just an us and God thing, like a private, okay, I'm, I'm good to go. But I think if we truly understand the magnitude of salvation, I think what it means is we want to bring as many people as possible with us too. Siding with God is not a private thing. It is an inviting people to come with us thing, to invite others to join the resistance with us too. Because we naturally desire that we want others to be saved as well. And sometimes this may take convincing. Imagine this. You, you imagine you're Rahab and you're going to talk to your father and you want to say to your father, hey, I met these spies and uh, I want you to come with me because they can save us. And your father goes, these spies, did you turn them in? Uh, no, I actually hid them. That, you, know, you know, that's treason. That can get you killed. That's, that's what I did because I trust them. I trust their God. I trust their people. And I want to invite you to come with me. On this day, they're going to show up and if you have a chance to be in my house that day, you can be saved too. That's the plea that she's making. And that may sound crazy to a lot of her family members, right? But that's our calling too. It's the same thing. We're inviting people around us to essentially commit treason to their own culture, to join God and his people. And we're saying, I invite you to trust me, to join me, to be in my house too. Here's my favorite part, verse 14. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. This is also be equally bewildering, okay? The men also met Rahab. She's also a stranger to him. She's a prostitute. And they promise her, Our lives for yours, even to death. One of the most fascinating things about the Dutch resistance is that a lot of these people who were strangers to one another before the war started, they decided to join forces and to trust one another with their lives. And it was a life and death thing. It was very common for the Gestapo, the German secret police, to capture people of the Dutch resistance and to torture them to betray information so that they would capture even, other, even more members of the Dutch resistance. So they were literally trusting one another with their lives. And here is the same thing. What I love about this story is Rahab and the spies, like the members of the Dutch resistance, they are strangers who decided to trust one another with their lives. Do you see that? So the, the spies, they are totally at Rahab's mercy, totally at her mercy. The, the people are knocking at her door. They're hiding in the roof. 
There's nowhere to go. Rahab, they, they just met her. She could have very easily said, I told these people to hide on the roof. Come check them out. You know, because she's a prostitute. She sells herself for money. It's, it's not, you can, you can put two and two together, right? She might sell them for money. That could have been a very likely scenario. So they were trusting her with their lives. And Rahab was also at the spies' mercy, at the mercy of these spies. These spies could have left, never seen them again. Jericho would have come crashing down and she could have come down with them. They could have, bought, they could have just chosen, I don't, I don't need to bother. She was just a random woman and I met her one day. We, had a, you know, we talked to one another, but she's a Canaanite. I don't need to care about her. And so she was totally at the mercy of these spies too. So these people, these people, instead of rejecting one another, these strangers, they decide to say to one another, our lives for yours, even to death. And I think that is how the church should be. That is how the church should be. When we on the inside of the church meet people on the outside of the church, people like Rahab who walk into the church, who are willing to lay aside their past, their culture, their history, to walk into the church, I think our proper response, our only proper response should be our life for yours even to death. That's the only option we have. Because if we are not there for them to death, then what do they have? That's what it means to be a church. A church is not just a building. A church is not just a weekly Sunday event. A church is a group of people who are radically committed to one another, trusting in one another, fighting for one another, saving one another, even to death. That's what a church is. Unfortunately, many, maybe many of you have experienced this in other churches. The modern church does not often look like this. The modern church is often plagued with selfishness and individualism. It's filled with solo Christians. What I mean by that is people who care about nobody but themselves. They're not willing to fight for one another, lay down their lives for one another, commit to one another. What they do is they're, they're, they think about their spiritual needs, their, spiritual, their, their own individual spiritual needs, spiritual desires, spiritual gifts, spiritual goals, spiritual lives. They're so consumed about themselves and about how they're doing, about whether or not they're fed, whether or not they're feeling satisfied, whether or not they're feeling content, whether God is pulling through for them. They're so consumed about these sort of things that when Rahab's walk into the church, they don't give a rip. And many times, the Rahab's walk into the church, they try it out for a while and they go right back out. What we need to realize is that these Rahabs, they desperately need the church and the church desperately needs them too. We all need one another. We all do. If you think you can do the Christian life on your own, you're wrong. You're wrong. We don't resist sin and evil and destruction by ourselves. The resistance is a communal effort. And my hope is that we would be a church where we would become more and more dependent on one another, more and more trusting of one another, more and more committed to one another, that we would have this courage, this zeal, this passion, the same that Rahab and the spies had to say to one another, my life for yours, even to death. Maybe you're here today and you're relatively new to Christianity. And if that's you, um, I'm really glad that you're here. And I want to invite you to consider 
joining the people of God. It might be strange. It might be difficult. You might have the same predicament that Rahab had. The people you're joining potentially might look strange to you. You don't know them very well. They talk funny. They look funny. They smell funny maybe. But maybe God has ordered all the things in your life to bring you to this day for such a time as this where you can say as Rahab said, I want to switch sides. I want to switch allegiances. I want to lay down what I know and I want to join you because this is the God I want. Maybe you're here today and you're already a Christian, but you don't have a home church. You don't have a regular place where you attend and you lived a lot of your recent life as a solo Christian. If that's the case for you, I want to invite you to join us too. We're no better, we're no better than anybody else. All we are are a bunch of people who have decided we want to try hard to cling to God and we want to try hard to cling to one another. That's all we do. And if that's something that appeals to you, that's something you want, we invite you to join us as well. And maybe we can be your new family. Um, I'll say this to other people. Maybe you're here, you're already a Christian, you've already committed to our church. But when you look at the story of Rahab, it seems kind of miraculous and supernatural and kind of foreign because you don't have relationships like this. When you look at your close friends, even your Christian ones, you don't feel like you have this commitment. You don't have this desire, this zeal. It seems superficial. It seems shallow. And if that's you, I invite you to take this step, to take the step that Rahab and the spies did. Someone, I don't know who it was, someone between Rahab and the spies, they had to take this awkward first step where they say, you know, we just met, you know, we're enemies, but today we're going to decide we're going to be on the same team and I'm going to get your back and you're going to get my back. They ha- someone had to initiate that conversation, right? And it's awkward and we all agree it's awkward, but I encourage you, take that step. I think there's enough people in our room, in our church, who want that. So what that means is just ask people. Ask people. Say, I want this relationship. This relationship where we're committed to one another until death. If that's too difficult for you, just, you know, you can reword it things. You can talk about your own way. But talk to people. Say, I want to resist sin and death with you under the banner of Christ with you. And I want that relationship. Do you want to have that relationship? And I'll say this to everyone here. Regardless of what category you're in, one of the best things you can do is join a community group. One of the best things you can do is join a community group. And I I would even say this is one of the best things you can do in life, period, okay? And I'm not kidding. You know, when I think about all the things that the life hacks, okay, that you can put on BuzzFeed or whatever, you know, the the very straightforward ones, okay, like, um, you know, have you saved money? Saved up some money for a rainy day fund? No? Oh, you should do that. That's, that's, you should do that. That makes sense, okay? Do you uh, ever eat food that's not fried chicken and donuts? Oh, no? Oh, you should do that. You know, it's, it's good to do those sort of things. Like, these are very straightforward things. It's just healthy, smart living. And I would say the same thing. Are you in a community group? No. I would encourage you to be in a community group. I mean, some of you, you might, you know, have special circumstances and there's always exceptions and that's okay. I'm not trying to, you know, guilt trip you if you have a special circumstance. But I would say the default situation, the default state, the default state 
of a Christian is to regularly be in Christian community where you're building these friendships, where you are committing to one another, trusting one another, depending on one another. That is the regular state, the default state of the Christian. And at our church, one of the best ways to do that is a community group. It's as simple as that. One of the best ways to experience those relationships, which is the default state for the normal Christian, is to join a community group. So after service, I encourage you to stick around, even for 10 minutes, whatever it is. Talk to people, get to know the different groups, look at your options, try to find something that works for you. We didn't finish Joshua 2. We read about half of it. Um, as it goes on, it talks about how the men, they tell her they'll be back for her. And they say something interesting in verse 18. They say, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. You shall gather into your, heart, your house, your father, mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. They said, tie the scarlet cord in your window. And what the scarlet cord was, was a symbol of the resistance. It was to mark Rahab's house so that when the Israelite armies came, they would be able to identify the family in that house. They're with us. They're on our side. Let's make sure they're saved. That was what the scarlet cord represented. In a sense, it was an echo of the Passover. Do you remember what the Passover was? Um, just a few books before, the Passover was uh, during uh, the Israelite slavery, during the Exodus, right? Uh, when the Israelites were being set free from slavery, there were these plagues. And the last plague, this angel of, dead, uh, of death came. They were going to kill people in the land, the firstborn of every family. And God said to the Israelites, kill a lamb and put the blood on the doorposts of your house. So that when the angel of death comes, that angel of death will see the red markings over your house. And then the angel will pass over. Right? That will be a symbol, a sign that says that you are with me. You're on our side. And in another sense, is a foreshadowing of the cross. Because one day there will be another reckoning where God will look over all the land and death will be coming. And every person whose heart is washed with the blood of Jesus will be protected from death. So that when God looks over the human race, those who have declared, I want the blood of Christ to be over my life, to be a symbol that Jesus has washed away my sins and that I am clean and God will look at us and he will say, you are with me. You're on my side. You're my people. And did you notice in the story that Rahab's actions saved not only her, but her whole family? The righteous act of one person resulted in the salvation of many. And in the same way, the righteous act of Jesus resulted in the salvation of many, of all who trust in him. Every man or woman who believes in him and chooses to be in the house of Jesus will be saved. Please stand with me as we move into a time of communion. The communion table. The communion table is our weekly reminder, uh, reminder that Jesus said to us, my life to yours, even to death. The same promise that Rahab and the spies made to one another, Jesus made that promise to us. At the communion table, we remember that Jesus demonstrated his resistance to sin, evil to death evil and death by dying 
on the cross by giving his life to us so that we would be saved from death. And that's the gospel. And we, the church, we are just people who have come together and said, you know what? The way Jesus committed to us, I want to have that same commitment to Jesus. I want to have that same commitment to one another. And I'm going to fall short. I want to fail. I'm going to fall flat on my face sometimes. I'm going to sin sometimes. I'm going to be bitter and proud and jealous and envious and hateful sometimes. But Jesus has committed to me until death. And I'm thankful for that. So feel free to reflect on what we heard today. When you're ready, come up on either side of the aisle. Take the bread, which represents Jesus' body broken for us. Dip it in the cup, which represents Jesus' blood shed for us. Eat it there. If you want prayer, if you want someone to pray for you, I'll be at the front. You're welcome to come up and receive prayer. Um, Let's do that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the story of Rahab and this tremendous story of faith and courage. And God, as we read about this, some of us, we feel convicted because our lives are are marked with cowardice. Our lives are marked with uh, shallowness and superficiality and fear and anxiety and trembling. And we can't even imagine what it would be like to live the way Rahab and the spies did. To lay everything down, to surrender everything, to leave everything behind just to follow you, to do your will, to side with you. And God, that seems intimidating to us. But we thank you that the gospel is not that we are courageous, but that Jesus was courageous. The gospel is not that we were bold, but that Jesus was bold. The gospel is not that we were zealous, but Jesus was zealous. Not that we were committed, but Jesus was committed. And we say thank you for him, God. We repent of the times in which we've chosen to be isolated and selfish and afraid. And we thank you so much that Jesus pursued us. He left his home in heaven, dwelled with us, committed to us, so that we could be committed to you. So God, may we be wholly devoted and committed to you and to one another. We thank you and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.